pray with me, won't you? Father, all that we give, we give out of thankfulness. Thankful that you chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless because we're not. We are not blameless, but we are declared blameless by him because of what he did in the cross for us and for our sins. And so we ask as we turn to your word that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we might perceive the truths that you have left for us to apply to our lives in this day. That you would bless. That you would convict. That you would reprove. And that you would guide us into being the people of God. And for that reason, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And the people of God said together, Amen. We're in chapter 4 of Ephesians this morning as we get into the passage that really is a divide between the old part of uh, the first three chapters and the, the new part where Paul is now taking the scriptures that he has taught us about what Christ has done for you and now he wants to lead you in applying those scriptures about Jesus being your Lord about the fact that he went to the cross and died for your sins to deliver you from the kingdom of darkness to bring in, you into a kingdom of light. That once you were alienated and separated from God, but now through the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, you have been brought into a new creation called the church. And in that day, as Paul's writing in Ephesians, he's writing to people who were both Jews and Greeks. They never associated with each other. They did not even, the only time, in fact, they ever really spoke to one another was during commerce, during business transactions. And Ephesus was a huge commercial city of that day. And so in light of that, as you and I think about the church today, one of the things we have learned from Paul is that God's vision for you as a church is not changed from what it was in the day that Ephesians was written. That God has called you, out of all the people of the face of the earth, who have believed in Jesus Christ and confessed your sins to him, that you literally have taken Christ at his words when he said, repent and believe in him. That you are now a new people. That God has created in the face of the earth to represent him and the kingdom of heaven. It was a mystery for them because Paul goes on to explain that these two different groups, Jew and Gentile, had now been brought together and the dividing walls that separated them are now torn down. Women who were once considered to be more like property in that day were now ushered into being co-inheritors with Jesus Christ. That instead of being just a, a, a part of a family, they now were an intricate part of a community of faith that really was representing what God intended from the very beginning. And so he talks about there being neither Jew nor Gentile, men nor women, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. And so this oneness is a huge, huge theme throughout the book of Ephesians. We discussed in the past weeks about how 
unity and oneness is almost impossible. In fact, it is impossible for you. Don't believe it? If I could put it on the screen above my head, your family as you were gathering to come to church and I could show a video of you and your family together, we probably wouldn't see a nice harmonious family coming to the table and breaking bread together and peacefully assembling in the congregation, would we? In fact, one of the things that we know is that there are no perfect families. And yet, there is such desire for a perfect family. Well, this is the standard by which Paul is now teaching us, that this is what God has come to do in Christ, to restore you to the perfect family of God. And in restoring, he is calling you to repent and to believe in Christ. And in so doing, he now calls us to begin to applying our faith in what God is doing to our lives today. He ends chapter 3 with these words. He ends it with, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. And so when you and I begin to dig into then what is the church to be like, it is to be a group of people who always have their fingers pointed to Jesus. We always direct people to the Christ. We always organize our lives, let out our, live out our days in ways of pleasing our Lord, loving and serving him, thinking about how we struggle in doing that because the moment that becomes the measurement of our life, we become instantly aware of how we do not live up to the standard that even Jesus would have us to live. And so therefore, Paul ends this first three chapters, beginning with prayer and ending with prayer, that you would know the power of Christ and the love that is in Jesus Christ, because that is the only power that can help you live out a life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, we come to chapter 4, and we begin with these words this morning as we read the first 16 verses. And out of respect to the Word of God, I want to ask if you would just stand with me as we hear this word this morning. Hear now the Word of God as I, as I as a prisoner for the Lord, I, I then urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Let me read that again. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ Christ apportioned it. 
This is why it, it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Well, what does he ascend mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens and in order, in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by every cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, we speak the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but uh, I, am, uh, I am amazed by people who have the gift of being a big picture person. Um, I, I've heard the phrase, um, you can't see the forest from the trees, or you can't see the trees from the forest. Whichever way it is, it speaks about the fact that there's a blindness that can happen in people's lives, and that blindness comes when we, we are unable or unwilling to see the general overall purpose of anything. I don't know if you're a, a movie buff. Uh, I, I dare say that now that our COVID is, or our, our, our pandemic is beginning to, to waver, that people are beginning to want to go back to the movies and enjoy them once again. Uh, I, I personally haven't been to a movie theater in probably three or four years. I can't remember the last movie I went to go see. It may have been Midway. It was an army movie about uh, the battle between Japan and the United States during World War II. But there was another movie that, I read, or I should say I watched as I read the scriptures this morning that just stirred my soul. It's called Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen it? Well, it's a simple story about some men who were on invading France during World War II and pushing the Germans back from their invasions. And they are sent, this squad of men are sent by their commanding officer to find the sole living brother of four brothers, three have perished, who is still alive somewhere in harm's way. And so they go through all kinds of trepidation and, and trials to reach this young man, finding him like a needle in a haystack. And as they take their stand, they realize that he's not going to leave his, his company or his platoon until they finish their job. And so they have to fight one last battle. And in that battle, 
the leader of that squad who was sent and ordered to go and find this private Ryan and bring him home safely is shot and wounded mortally. And as he is sitting beside a tank dying, the Ryan who has been spared and saved after the battle is completed looks down upon this man and he looks up and he says to Private Ryan, earn this. the end of the movie you cut to a man who is now advanced in age he must be in his 80s they have traveled all across the Atlantic to go to the grave the very grave of the man who died who told him to earn it and stands over it weeping and as he's thinking about the sacrifices that these men have made so that he could live begins to weep grabs his wife and says, haven't I lived a good life? Tell me I'm a good man. She didn't know what to say except, of course. The movie is so powerful because it really speaks to our desire to have influence and significance in life. But even more than that, the question resolves in our minds as we finish something like that, have I lived a good life? Have you? So well, I'm, I'm not 80 yet. Well, you could be in your 20s, and you might not see 30. Have you lived a good life? Paul puts it this way. Have you lived a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called? I, I would rather deal with other things this morning than that, wouldn't you? Because when we begin to reflect on our life, we oftentimes feel that there was less accomplished than more. And so this morning as we deal with this passage, what Paul is really driving home for the Christians is that because you are now a, a creation that is in line with Jesus Christ, that you are alive because of what Christ did for you in his sacrifice of the cross bearing your sins upon it so that you might have eternal life. Paul now writes to the Ephesians and he says, because of all that God has done for you, you must now ask yourself, do I live a life worthy of the calling? If you look at the passage, he begins it this way, as a prisoner of the Lord. And so because of that, we go back to chapter 1 and we are aware, very much aware that Paul feels like he has been imprisoned in two senses. One, he is literally writing from prison this letter as he is suffering for Jesus Christ and the only thing that he has done is preached Christ to a world of unbelief. And because of that, he has now been accused and locked up by enemies of the gospel who do not want people to believe in Jesus. And he is suffering and languishing in that prison. And you think that prison is like an American prison, you would be deathly wrong. It was a hole dug in the ground where you were lowered into and you were left there. So that you had no resources of a bathroom or shower or anything else except a hole in the ground. And there he was riding from that hole to people in a city called Ephesus. And he's writing to them saying... I want you to remember that I am in chains and I want you to live a life worthy of the calling. You say, well, if that's what we get for living for Jesus, who wants to live that way? 
But see, here's the other part of that. He was a prisoner because God had called him as an apostle to the Gentiles to preach Christ to those who did not know God and were separated from him by their sins. He could do nothing else. You know, that's what happened to you. When you came to hear the gospel and you heard of how God would forgive you, if you would repent and believe in him, you became his prisoner. Not in the sense that he took you against your will, but that there is nothing you can do to escape that love of God in such measure that it has enveloped your heart and drawn you to him in such tremendous power that you love Christ. And to think of doing anything else is foreign to you if indeed you are in Christ this morning. Paul says, as a prisoner, therefore, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling to which you've received. Notice it's not something that he earned. It was something received. It's not something you have earned. It's something God has given through the Son, Jesus. And you say, okay, well then what is really the focus of what Paul is teaching us this morning? It is two things. One, to live a life worthy of the calling is to maintain unity with Christ and his people. And then secondly, it is to realize you need to grow in your relationship with Christ so that you mature in that relationship. Those two things. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the calling which you have received. And so if you're a part of a church this morning and you're, lit, you're, a, you're a part of a community of faith and you're not involved in maintaining the unity of the body of Christ, then you're not really a part of Christ. You're simply living as an alien and stranger to the kingdom of God. If you are not intentionally growing in your understanding of the scriptures and in your life of prayer and in your fellowship with other believers in this congregation and others, if you are not intentionally involved in that, then you're not really having the big picture in your mind of what God is doing in the world through the church. Because the church was created by Christ as an organization to be involved in the mission of maintaining the unity that only comes from Jesus Christ. And secondly, to produce disciples who become more and more like Christ in every part of their life. And there is the struggle, isn't it? It's the big picture. This is the big picture that Paul gives us. Well, how then do we know? Are there any indications that Paul gives us as to whether we really are maintaining the union or unity of our church? Is there any indications that he gives us? And unfortunately, there are. If you go further in verse 2, he really points out that the first sign, the first sign of the unity of Christ is humility. And I think it's interesting that in the days that Paul wrote this, the Greek language did not have a word that describes humility in the way he meant it in this letter. So he took a Greek word and borrowed it and brought it into a new context. And that humility is foreign to the Greeks, where basically the Greek believed that the only way to live is to puff yourself up, to make your name great, to be important enough that you influence others, and what your will is, is what people do. 
And so to be prominent even in the world today, everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to have power. Paul says, no, 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 that's not for you. If you are a mark of, of a Christian, if you have that mark, then you're not in the business of building your kingdom. You're in the business of building the kingdom of Christ. And in building that kingdom, you are in the business of not promoting yourself. You're in the business of promoting Jesus. That's one of the marks that he gives of the unity that we are to maintain. And so often, you know, the problem with that is in the church, we are a very prideful people. Did you know that? We're a, we're a people who, who sin in such tremendous ways and justify treating each other poorly because of our pride. And so in light of that, Paul says to the Ephesians, now that you are a new creation in Christ, you are to maintain the unity by seeking to be humble, to not advance your agenda, but to advance the agenda of Jesus Christ in his, in his, in his church. The second is that you are to be gentle. And man, I know when you hear that, you think weakness, but that's not what Paul is talking about in this verse. When he says that we must be humble and gentle, he is talking about someone who understands the strength that they have, but they know they don't have to use it in forcing others to bend their will. In fact, in the church, in the history of Christianity, the emblem of gentleness has always been the cross and the basin and the towel. Those two imageries talk about what this new definition Paul is giving concerning the sign of unity in the church, and that is that we are called to be a people who die to ourselves and live for Christ, and secondly, we are called to be a people who serve. And that servanthood mentality is foreign to anyone who wants to be prideful and to be served. I don't know about you, but I find it extremely interesting in our day as we're coming out of the pandemic that most of the restaurants are, highly, are having a hard time finding people to work. It's not hard to go into a restaurant to want to be served, but it sure is hard to think about going into a restaurant and wanting to be served, or I should say, and serving others. Could you imagine? Let's say you go to the famous toastery this afternoon and you sit down and suddenly you realize nobody's there to take your order. You don't give a thought about it, the fact that you might could just go to the kitchen and tell them what you want and take the order yourself. No, we don't think about that at all. In fact, in our privileged society as Americans, we have come to the place where we think we should be served by everyone. Have you ever thought that your point your part in the church is to be serving others. This is what Paul says is the mark of the unity. It's a gentleness. It is a servanthood. He says that we're to be patient. What does that mean? Well, it's not in the sense of allowing people to do dumb things. But we are to be patient in the sense that we realize that God is at work in us and in the church to perfect us, that we are not to perfect ourselves. And in light of that, we never give up. We are persistent in our faith. We are not people who see defeats in the church as, as final battles, but only temporary distractions from ultimately what Christ is going to do. 
And then finally, he says, I should say, almost finally, is that we are crowned with this love that can only be experienced as we come into knowing Jesus Christ, but it can only be in the church as you are connected to that one who you love, Christ himself. And then finally, it issues in a peace where the church lives in unity, serving Christ the head. Now, I said that's a big picture item. It is a big picture. And it's, a, it's, it's an impossibility for anyone who endeavors to live after Christ to do it in their own power. There is no way that you and I could be humble and gentle and patient and loving and ex extend peace unless you have Christ in your heart. But here's another part of this maintaining the unity that Paul points out. And he says that the shape of this unity is that we are all one. And you can well imagine how challenging that must have been to those Jews and Greeks in that day because they were so used to being different from one another. They are now called to be one because they're part of one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You can see it dripping through the pages that Paul is calling them to this unity that only Christ can give, that only they can have as they yield to Christ. But even more importantly, he says that not only are you to maintain that unity, you are to grow in maturity. Now, I want you to know there's real hope in this for me. There's real hope in this because we recognize when we come to Christ and we receive him that we still feel so inadequate, don't we? And so the answer to that is what do we do with our inadequacies? And the answer is we continue to grow, we mature. How do we do that? Well, the most powerful, Paul, uh, the pow most powerful thing that Paul points out is that maturity comes as you and I ask God to help us to mature. You say, well, where is that? Well, look in verse 14. As you look in verse 14, you'll find that Paul teaches so powerfully that then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by everywhere of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. How will this happen? Because Christ will give people gifts to mature the church. That each person is given a spiritual gift by which the church is to grow deeper in its love for God and more importantly in its service of the kingdom. And not everyone has the same gifts. There are varieties. But whatever gift God gives to each person who is a part of his church, it is to equip the church for its ministry. You hear this? And it is to edify and encourage people in their struggle with their sinful nature to be obedient to Christ. When you and I begin to think about what Paul is doing, he is really calling the Ephesians and he's calling us to begin to think a different way, to live a different way. And it's not obeying rules, it's abiding, it's growing in our knowledge and our love of Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you once again, have you lived a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called?
do you maintain the unity of the church in Jesus Christ? And are you intentionally maturing in your walk with him? So I, I'd like to know a little more about this. What does this involve? Tell me what this really means. How does the rubber meet the road? Well, it, it really is quite simple. He goes on through chapters 4, 5, and 6, and he lays it out. He's going to be talking about, as children of light, you are not to live as people who love darkness anymore because you have now come to love Christ. That should have some effect in your behavior. He's going to go on and deal with the fact that not only should it have some effect in your personal attitudes about how you should spend your time and what you should be thinking about during your days, it's going to affect your marriage. I can't wait till we get to chapter, chapter 5 and we talk about wives and husbands because I have seen this passage so abused in so many ways. And I want you to know, when you hear wives that you're sub to submit to your husbands, that submission and that word causes such rancor in women's lives because they think, I shouldn't be a slave to anybody. But what they fail to realize is when you look at the meat of that passage, 80% of the passage deals with the man being submissive. Have you thought of that? When you begin to apply this concerning children and parents, we live in a society that caters to children. Do you know that? And so because we're catering to children, we don't want to harm them because we don't want to take anything from them because we don't want them to be crushed. And so we do everything to make sure our children won't suffer. Well, let me tell you, any teacher who has been in a classroom can tell you that so often the problem with the kids are not the kids, it's their parents who excuse their children's bad behavior. Why has it happened this way? Because we have lost the sense of what God has called for the glory of God, the parents' roles in parenting the children. Isn't that interesting? We could go further, and we will. This morning as we gather around this table, as Logan leads us in this communion, let me ask you, honestly, pointedly, if you believe that Christ has died for your sins and that you are now in Christ and you have a salvation that is through Christ, then what in your life marks that you have helped to maintain the unity of the church in Jesus Christ and how have you grown? since you first gave your life to Christ? And the answer to that is, how have you learned to submit, to yield to the Word of God as Jesus reveals it to you? This is the big picture. And Paul is going to lead us through each minutia. And I want you to know it's not going to be pleasant. You know why? I don't know anyone who really wants to follow Christ saying, yippee, wonderful, until they understand what Christ wants to do in them. I don't know any children who love to hear their parents say, it's time to go to bed, or eat your asparagus, or broccoli, whichever you hate. I don't know of any Christian who enjoys hearing 
But if you're going to love Jesus, you're going to have to change. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the word of God and for the power of Christ in us. That he has not come into the world to placate our desires, but to transform us in our inner man, our inner woman, and so change us in our affections that we become more and more obvious to the world that we are different because of him. So, Father, in the brief moments that we have this morning, the real question as we come to this table is that you would show me how I can maintain unity in this church and what it will cost me to do it. And then how I can grow deeper in my obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Without these qualities within us, we will never live up to the church's calling. But because he is at work in us even today, Paul declares that we are overcomers through him who's loved us. We pray for this week of outreach. We are not here to entertain children or to placate families. We are here this week to teach about Jesus that all may believe in him. And may we be faithful in this, we pray. And the people of God said together,